Okay. So it's a little while since we were looking at the book of Nehemiah. Still just a couple of hands raised. Do keep them up for a little bit longer. If you'd like to be finding Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll start reading in a moment just uh, from verse 11. So Nehemiah 2, verse 11. Again, following Nehemiah's story uh, thus far. Let's, um, let's read together. Nehemiah 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gates toward the jackal well and the dung gates, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I'd said nothing uh, to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat, the Horite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, uh, heard about it, uh, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you've no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. There we go. So, Nehemiah has journeyed back to Jerusalem. The quick recap goes something like this. About 140 years beforehand, uh, Jerusalem was besieged and it was destroyed um, by Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. This is what uh, many of God's prophets had predicted would happen because God's people had systematically and for generations turned their back on him. Uh, and then this moment of judgment came. Um, Jerusalem then is not a city really that can be inhabited. There's no security. The walls are down and those amongst God's people who survive are taken off into captivity. And so in this book we meet Nehemiah and he lives and works in Susa, which is 800 miles away. And he's an ordinary Jew, uh, but he's never been to Jerusalem and he has a very influential boss. Anyway, he hears a report about what's going on in Jerusalem. Some attempts have been made, some progress has been made back in God's city, the city of God, the, the holy city, uh, the joy of the whole earth, as it's called in the Psalms. Some progress has been made in rebuilding the temple, even in rebuilding the walls, but then further setbacks have come. Nehemiah hears this gutting, devastating report. It's still a ruin. The walls are down, and this city is in disgrace. And we saw how for four months, he just got before God, 
and he was praying. And during that time, God was laying on his heart a vision, uh, a vision to restore Jerusalem. And, uh, and so he realized that really in order to see that fulfilled, God was calling him to, to go back, to go back to Jerusalem, which was impossible because he would have to get the go-ahead from the king of the whole empire, his boss, King Artaxerxes. That seemed unlikely to him, but we saw when we looked at this passage last time, or the previous passage, how God's favor was on Nehemiah. And so we see uh, in verse 8 of chapter 2, the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So that was the moment it was poised that last time. Nehemiah, with the king's backing, with all the resources that he needs, and even a, a kind of a cavalry group um, to, to go with him and protect him, um, all of that has come about. And now he's made the journey back, 800 miles to Jerusalem. So that's where we find him. The favor of God has been on him. And it's really a miracle that he is standing there in Jerusalem. And we'll see what happens first of all as he kind of does a survey of the city. From verses 11 through to 16, that's what we find out about. He does a survey. He, he goes out and he, he looks with his own eyes. He's heard a report of all that God, uh, of, of all that's happened in that city. Uh, and now he's going to go and see with his own eyes. What really is the situation? Um, what's interesting then is right at the outset, what does he do for the first three days? He's just arrived back in Jerusalem. He's got this massive vision uh, that God has given him to restore Jerusalem. The name Jerusalem, as I mentioned, is often referred to as uh, the, the city of God, the holy city. The phrase Salem almost, also means peace. This was to be the, the city of peace, a place where people were to know what it is to live at peace with God, at peace with God, in right relationship with God, and therefore being a demonstration to the world around um, that would provoke them to want the same relationship with God. That was their call. That was what they had abandoned by worshipping other gods. Now, Nehemiah is back. For the first three days, he rests. For the first three days, he takes it easy. As he does this survey of the city, we get some insights into what a, 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 a man of God, a man of action, a man of vision how he conducts himself, he rests for three days. He's just travelled for 800 miles. Um, he's not just charging on with spiritual bravado. He knows, with all common sense, he needs to recharge his batteries. But then, after those three days, he sets out. Um, so he's not relying on someone else's report. Um, he's going to see for himself. Important to get first-hand information. But this survey is secret. He does it at night, we find out in verse 12. He doesn't tell anyone else about it. He doesn't draw attention to himself. It's just him. He's on a horse or on a mount of some other kind, some other animal. But there's no huge entourage. There's no huge squadron out with him. He's trying to be discreet to see for himself what's going on. And he finds out just uh, as it was told him, the walls are 
broken down. The gates have been destroyed by fire, eaten by fire. I think, how did he receive that? He's, he's walked around the city. One can imagine then, it's as bad as he thought. Possibly it's even worse. How did he feel as he was going around the city, seeing God's city, God's community, what was supposed to be this great beacon, a great light for all nations of the world to see and be drawn to? What does it mean to live in right relationship with God? Well, people would see a wonderful demonstration of people at peace with God, at peace with one another, and demonstrating God's goodness, demonstrating what it means to live um, in the good of God's love to all the world. But it's, it's destroyed. You kind of wonder, did he shed a tear? He would have surely been uh, overwhelmed to see the extent of it. We find out that it was so bad that in verse 14, there was no room. There was not enough room for my mount to get through when he comes towards the fountain gate. And so there are all these gates around the city, ways for people to come in and come out. He's on a horse, but he has to dismount. Now, why was that? Surely they would have made gates that were substantial enough to to ride into town. Well... There's just a huge amount of rubble. When he gets there, the walls are broken down, and there's rubble everywhere. This city is not easy to get about. A huge amount of rubble. So probably what had happened is, in certain parts, certainly around the south of the city, um, the city wall would have supported uh, terraces and buildings behind. So when the wall came down, other houses, other buildings would have just tumbled into the valley. And so you just got this huge amount of debris. You can't live. You can't move easily. You can't do trade. You can't, there's maybe a few buildings that are standing, but it's a scene still, all these years later, of utter devastation. We're going to find out in a little while that there were people living there, living in the city of peace, in that trying to make a go of life in that situation. What struck me in reading this passage, in terms of the whole book of Nehemiah, is probably, actually, this is the most peaceful time of the whole book. Think about it. Nehemiah's had this time of great kind of inner turmoil as he's been praying, this great time of uncertainty before the king. Will the king grant all my requests? He's not sure. There's turmoil on the inside. And God's favor comes Wonderful. Now he's gone to Jerusalem, but as yet, no one started building. This is not a building site. There's no, there's no work happening. It's just quiet life. As he wanders around, maybe at other times there'd be the birds singing, gentle noises, but no great activity. It's very peaceful. You kind of wonder when he got to that point, would he have just have thought, well, I've encountered the favor of God. I know his goodness. See what all he's done so far. All the things that he's provided me with. And, 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 and all my requests being granted and some when I spoke to the king. This is great. Ah, oh, this is living life in the anointing of God. The man of God for the hour. Let's, let's just enjoy this. He could have just been lulled into thinking, ah, oh, when he then gets and he sees the rubble and he sees the mess and he sees the debris. But he hears the birds singing. Maybe he just thinks, 
I'll, I'll just settle down. I'm, I'm, let's wait a little bit longer than three days. That, that survey I was going to do of the walls, that can wait. I'm going to enjoy the tranquility and the stillness of this moment. But it's like taking a walk in a cemetery. It might be peaceful, but it's not much life there. And walking around this city, it might be quiet. There's no life there. There's no security there. It's not yet really a city enjoying the peace of God, is it? And, uh, and sometimes in life, what we can want are things that make us comfortable, make us peaceful. We don't want frantic activity. We, don't, uh, we just want to have a peaceful, comfortable, straightforward, easy life. But there's rubble. Ah, well, we can just live with that. We can just live with the mess. We can just live with disappointments. Or we can just, we can live with actually being under the judgment of God. This was a city that had been destroyed because they turned away from God. Ah, well, we can, we can just live with that. We'll, we'll, we'll not go back to that. We'll not, we'll not attempt to kind of rebuild faith in God. We're just going to cope. We're just going to live with life how it is. But peace is never going to be found that way. The peace will never be found in just, in just coping, just trying to muddle on through, allowing the rubble to go unmoved. Sometimes we can just get used to living amongst the rubble and debris, not clearing things out of the way. Not clearing out of the way what might be going on in the inside. Unforgiveness. Bitterness. Frustrations with, with prayers that God hasn't answered before now. Or, or just a, a doubt that he even exists. And we just, we'll just live with that and we'll just try and cope. It's just me. I'm just going to try and carve out for myself a life that makes sense in amongst all the rubble that we might find ourselves in in this world. But then Nehemiah comes into this situation. He comes in with fresh eyes from the outside. He comes in and says, we can't live like this. And sometimes there'll be those like apostles and prophets that God gives to the church, and they come in with, with fresh eyes and, and kind of just grab our attention again. We weren't designed to live like this. And so, again, we've, we received recently Terry and Wendy, uh, Virgo, uh, coming amongst us for a weekend. We tried, we tried to persuade them to stay um, because of all that they are and all that they would bring. Uh, we had their, the benefit of their, uh, their teaching and their wisdom um, for one weekend. And in a sense, the messages, certainly that I heard, were, in a sense, they were straightforward. They were, they were a simple reminder for many of us of things that we already know. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, what it means to be a Christian is a life with Jesus every day. Jesus is here. Jesus is alive. He was resurrected. He's ascended to heaven. And now, by his spirit, he's at work and he's amongst us Right now, we don't see him, but we know his activity is here. And so Terry was just wonderfully reminding us of that fact. Jesus is alive and he's here and he wants to be involved with 
your life, with my life. So it's not just me waking up each morning, sifting through the rubble and thinking, how am I going to make sense of this today? I will just try to make my life make sense by myself. So no, we get to wake up with Jesus. We get to wake up. We're with him. We're with Jesus. We're in a real relationship with him where anything can happen. And so on that evening, we saw legs lengthen and arms uh, start working again. We saw people healed. Because why? Jesus is here. That's what happens when Jesus is around. Lives get blessed. Lives get transformed. Lives get healed. We were reminded of that. We can just get used to living in our situations, living with our rubble, living with difficulty, living with debris, the kind of the debris of past hurts and pains. Oh, it's, well, we've just got to trudge on. Someone from the outside comes into town and says, no, we're not designed to live like this. We're designed to live in relationship with Jesus. And on a Sunday morning, hearing another wonderfully simple message as he spoke from um, John chapter 2, when Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into wine and spoke to, this, uh, to the servants and said, fill up the jars with water. You what? We need wine, not water. And uh, we were reminded again of what it means just to live a life of simple obedience in G- to Jesus. So I'm, 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 we're not designed to take the wheel of our own lives being controlled and everything. No, passing on our lives in entirety, control over aspects of our lives, handing them over to Jesus and says, I know life will work better, even miraculously well, when I relinquish control of my life and hand it over to you. Wonderful truths brought with great wisdom and anointing from a man with apostolic ministry comes in and he can he he sees this is how we're we're made to live this is what we we need to see apostles prophets god's people from the from coming outside our situation into our situation help us to see and so our focus isn't just then on on coping but rather believing in what god has for us or maybe i could present that as a question is our focus on just coping coping with the rubble that we know or believing in what God wants to do in re-establishing uh, a, a wall that provides real support. Let's have faith that God does not just want us to learn to cope. He wants us to expect life-changing encounter with him and for others to enjoy the same. So... Nehemiah does a secret survey of the city. Notice that he doesn't just share his heart straight away. He doesn't rock up into town and say, come on, everybody, um, I've come from Susa, I'm the man, I've got all these resources, I've got this vision from God, come with me, let's do it. He takes time, he takes a rest, he walks around the city, and he identifies with people, he then does arrive at a point where he shares his heart. We see this in verse 17 and 18. He said, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. He shares the whole story. It's good and there's a, there's a right time for sharing the whole 
story, saying what has God been doing so far? He wants them to see what God has been doing, how God has already spoken to um, to really galvanize the whole community that are living in this totally uh, devastated city to work together to rebuild it, to rebuild the city. Nehemiah knows he can't do this by himself. He knows, therefore, that he needs people to hear um, what God has been saying, what God has been doing. He's identifying himself with them. He's saying, look, look at the trouble we are in. Let us rebuild the wall. We will no longer be in uh, in disgrace. This is a new day for Jerusalem, a new opportunity, uh, something that's not to be missed. But the question is, how will those living in Jerusalem hear what he has to say? Will they hear it with faith? Will they hear it with fear? Will they prefer the kind of peace that they know in the here and now, which is really no peace at all, or will they choose instead to roll up their sleeves and set to work together uh, to rebuild a city that really would then represent, what does it mean to live in peace with God? A city that would be, again, the joy of the whole earth. How will they hear it? Because they could just take offense at Nehemiah's negative assessment of how things are. The trouble we're in. The gates have been eaten by fire. Look at all this rubble. Hey, that's our rubble. You leave it alone. We've got used to that. We're kind of familiar with it. Don't go knocking our city. It might not look much to you, mate, but we've been making a life for ourselves here. Would they just take offense? Would they take offense because Nehemiah, he might have a powerful job in Susa, He's just an ordinary guy. He's not a priest. He's not from a special tribe. He's just an ordinary Jew who's been doing his job for a foreign king. How are they going to receive this guy? They could just take offense at him. Who do you think you are? Let alone your vision, mate. On your bike. Horse. Or something. Um, so they could have, they could have taken offense at him. They could have just preferred the status quo. They could have just preferred the situation that they were in. And here they have Nehemiah saying, look at the gracious hand of God. Look how God has provided. Look at uh, 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 what the king has said. This foreign king who doesn't know our God has, has blessed us, has given us these resources, has given us permission to go for it. There's an opportunity. This is a new day. An opportunity not to be missed. Ah, but for some, an opportunity not to be missed sounds like a lot of hard work. What do you hear in the phrase, an opportunity not to miss? We've got a few pictures that reveal something of, I think, what an estate agent means when they say an opportunity not to miss. Number one, there we have it. There we are. An opportunity not to miss, ladies and gentlemen, in a prime Location, sizable accommodation, and uh, a real opportunity for an investor. An opportunity not to be missed. Here's another one a little bit closer to home, would you believe? An opportunity not to be missed. I give you a 1920s cinema, which is actually only up the road in Thorn. So in, in, the, in a very God-given county of Yorkshire, 
is this huge property, a 1920s cinema. And you look at that and you think, yeah, it's ugly, it's grim. Okay, the walls haven't been knocked down, but there's not much else to it, is there? That is going to be hard work. So some people hear opportunity not to be missed, but they hear the problems and the difficulties and the challenges that are going to come with this opportunity. Uh, Apparently Thomas Edison is quoted as having said, we often miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Here is an opportunity dressed in overalls which looks like work. But someone with vision can see it differently. Someone with vision can see, yeah, that's how it is right now. But this together is what we can make it into, which brings us on to the next picture. It was subject to a grand designs type uh, endeavor. And so now, believe it or not, still in Thorn, still in South Yorkshire, is a beautiful, if slightly quirky looking, uh, house. They probably had to wear overalls. They probably had to roll their sleeves up. Probably cost them a bob or two as well. But actually there, they've taken something and they've restored it. Actually, it's not exactly like it was before. It's restored into something different, something much better than the version of a 1920s cinema there was before. Thank you very much for the slide show. So an opportunity not to be missed. How will the people of God in Jerusalem respond then to Jeremiah? Let us start rebuilding. That's what Nehemiah said. But then we get their response to, yeah, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Someone has said, this is as much a miracle as the miracle that meant that the king in Susa gave Nehemiah his gracious favor and granted all his requests. This is just as much a miracle. They could have preferred the tranquility, the stillness of the status quo. They could have tried to find peace in the rubble. But instead, like Nehemiah, they prefer to, f- to work for the vision of a better city. Seeing the city of peace restored, even though it would be hard work at every step. They were prepared to embrace the inconvenience, the discomfort of shifting through the rubble and rebuilding the walls. Centuries later, another man would come to Jerusalem. Another man who was sent on a mission by the king, indeed the king of kings. And he came uh, with a vision to restore. At his birth, as we were singing earlier on, there were angels above the hills of Bethlehem singing out, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And from his baptism... As Mark mentioned earlier on, the favor of God was clearly upon him. At his baptism, the Spirit of God descended on him. People heard the audible voice of the Heavenly Father saying, You're my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit of God descending on him, the Spirit of God empowering him. 
And from that day on, it was very clear that this man was anointed with the Spirit of God and the favor of God was on him to heal the sick, to forgive people, to genuinely transform people's lives. You, you kind of read through the Gospels and you hear about people and you think, yeah, they probably felt like rubble left on the side of the path, overlooked, life a ruin with no hope. And then Jesus comes in and says, and he kind of like picks up the brick, picks up the rubble and says, no, in my kingdom, you've got a, you've got a place. You're going to be part of the community that I build. Now, I'm restoring you. You've been down here. You've been down in the gutter. You've fallen out of your right place before me. Now I'm picking you up. And I'm setting you in. I'm putting you in. There's other bricks around. There's a big community. There's a, there's a wall. But there's a real community. And people, when they encountered Jesus, when they were in that situation, their lives were transformed. So they were given their dignity back. They actually then, they received peace. Because of Jesus coming into their lives, they received forgiveness, peace with God. And yet yeah, the, the details, the circumstances of their life may in course have time, uh, in the course of time changed. But right from encountering Jesus, they come into a new relationship and it's, they're brought into peace. They're brought into a relationship with Him. So Jesus was sent by God in heaven to Jerusalem to restore not so much a city, not so much physical walls, but actually to restore people into a relationship with God, that they would be at peace with God. Now, what happens then when he arrives into town? What happens when he comes up into Jerusalem? Uh, just before the time, then obviously when he is crucified, before he's raised from the dead and ascends, we, we read about it in Luke 19 and verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes uh, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. In heaven and glory in the highest. And uh, so you could say, well, that's quite a welcome. I don't think Je- uh, Nehemiah got that necessarily um, because he came in so quietly. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he's welcomed. There are people who are welcoming him. There are others who are worshipping God, worshipping him um, because of all the miracles they'd seen. All the, all the evidence of God's favour on this man who was the son of of God. So some are welcoming, some are worshipping, but what's Jesus doing? We find out that Jesus is weeping. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. In fact, it really says he wailed over it. Kind of noisy grief. He's moved to grief when he sees the city of Jerusalem. At that point, the city is well built. The walls are up. There's even a temple now. And it's, it's glorious. People going up for a great feast, a great important time in the city. They see something marvelous. But for Jesus, it's different. He says in verse 42, If you, even you, 
had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So when Jesus and his disciples rock up into town, the disciples look at the temple and they go, look, what magnificent stones. They see something glorious. What does Jesus see when he sees the city? He says, I see rubble. I see a people who are not right with God. I see a people who have turned away from a relationship with God. And so they are rejecting me, the Messiah, who's been sent to save and rescue. The angels said it right. Peace to all on whom, uh, peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. He came with peace. He came with forgiveness. He came to establish a new community. He came to transform people's lives, but they did not recognize the time of God's coming. When they saw Jesus, they rejected rather than received him. You see, Nehemiah was received. Nehemiah was received well. Let's start rebuilding. Yes, we're with you. We understand your vision and we want to be part of it. But for many in Jerusalem, no. Jesus is not the man that we were expecting. He's not the Messiah we were expecting. He just looks like an ordinary Jew. He's not from a priestly family. Doesn't look that important. Doesn't look special. In fact, he offends us because he's just a carpenter. He's got the wrong accent. He's from the wrong town. There's rumors that maybe he, he wasn't conceived in the most appropriate of circumstances for a Jew. No, we're going to take it. We can't imagine that God has anointed him. We can't imagine that he's a man that we should follow. We can't imagine that he's got anything to give us. We're at peace with God already. What are you talking about? Life is fine. We've made a decent go of things. We've got hallmarks of success. We're okay. We're doing well for ourselves. If there is a God, I can see no reason why he's not at peace with us. Oh, didn't recognize. Didn't recognize Jesus. That's what was going on here in Jerusalem. But this is a new day. This is a new opportunity. This is something not to be missed. Jesus came to do a new thing. Not to restore the city of Jerusalem, a specific location in the Middle East. He came for people. He came for us. He came to restore people, not just from one nation, not just from one part of the globe, but from right across uh, the nation. This is how it's written right at the beginning of uh, John's Gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 10, reading from there. Uh, speaking of Jesus, speaking of, of the Word of God, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right To become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That was the promise. That was the possibility. That was the opportunity. That's the invitation that Jesus came to share with all. He came to his own and they didn't receive him. 
Yet, to all who do receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He gives the blessing of being at peace with him. That's what it means to become uh, born again. That's what it means to be a Christian. It really doesn't matter what your story is so far. It's it doesn't matter. You don't have to have certain qualifications. You don't have to have come from a certain place. You don't have to have a certain accent. It's insignificant. What what matters is believing in him. Uh, believing in Jesus. Believing that he died. Believing that when he died, he was taking a punishment that we deserved. Uh, and when he rose again, he rose again to a new life. And at the same opportunity, the same invitation, the same possibility is there for us to, in a sense, as we've seen today, demonstrated in baptism, have a kind of death, but then to be raised to a new life. Again, as we've heard uh, already, that does not mean that life gets any easier. doesn't mean that challenges, hardships, Difficulties are suddenly taken out of the equation. I've got peace with God now. And so I glide through life. And there's absolutely no problems. Well, back in the story of Nehemiah, the people say, yes, we're going to rebuild. Yes, we're going to follow this man called Nehemiah. And uh, straight away then, when there's a new opportunity, when there's a new day for the people of God, you get opposition. And uh, in this situation, it's a couple of guys called Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are high-powered baddies. Uh, these are, are, are governors of whole districts that surround Jerusalem and God's people. And they are disturbed. They are not happy. Uh, we find that out in verse 10 that we didn't uh, read this time. Um, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And so as long as Jerusalem is a peaceful heap of rubble, they'll keep themselves to themselves. But as soon as they dare to believe, as soon as they start to build, as soon as they kind of give their lives into this new mission, this new vision for the city, opposition starts to come. Ridicule, mockery. What is this? you are doing what are you playing at are you trying to rebuild these walls they've been devastated for 100 years or more who do you think you are are you rebelling against the king have you really got permission to do this that's how it starts and as we go on in this book we'll see how that opposition intensifies but right now it's just worth noticing it's not surprising that when God is doing a new thing, opposition flares up. It's perhaps they're not surprising when two people make the decision to get into a baptistry with clothes on, go down, come back up, testify from the microphone saying, I'm following Jesus. It's not surprising that when people make that decision, that there can be comments Questions, ridicule. What's that about? What, what are you playing at? Kind of, as long as the rubble's still there, as long as the same old life is kind of still kind of muddling through, 
it doesn't happen. But as soon as we make a stand for Christ, as soon as we say, this is who I am, as soon as we kind of own up to our faith, then opposition can come. And then like Nehemiah and like God's people uh, in this book, we need to be determined to respond in the way of, uh, to kind of persevere, to press on. I'm not, I'm not going to kind of, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to pretend that my faith doesn't exist. I'm not going to respond with hostility myself, but I am going to keep walking in a path that God sets out before me. So this this mission in any number of ways could have been harpooned early on. But they press on and they get to work in rebuilding the city. Having looked at all of that, I wonder what that means for us as a church. Perhaps it's a time when God is doing a new thing in a year of favor. God's hand, God's favor upon us. We'll only know in hindsight whether this will prove to be the most peaceful and tranquil time that we experience as a church because God then says, right, it's time to build this. It's time to do that. Let's, let's go. Let's restore. Let's work. Let's, let's get the overalls on. Let's roll our sleeves up. There's a, there's a kind of time of rest and preparation which is pointing towards activity, pointing towards mission, pointing towards vision, pointing towards work, opportunity, dressed in overalls and looking like work. But if that's to come, what will our response be? The status quo is always preferable. Let's just have things as they've been. Let's stay with what we're familiar with. Or let us rebuild the walls. Let us see a church continue to be established in this city, which is a blessing to the city and demonstrates what it is to live in the peace of God. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? What might it mean for, for individuals here? It could mean now's a time when God's just reminding you or probing you. You've, you've been kind of living with rubble. You've been kind of just trying to, to cope, make do. But it's not really peace. It's not really great. And you've heard those, those words from, from John chapter 1. To, to all who did receive, to those who believed in his name, he, be, he gave the right to become children of God. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity not to be missed. Jesus might just want to transform your life and let you know what real peace looks like. Let's pray, shall we?